We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Acts again. We're in chapter 1 still this evening. We're in Acts chapter 1 and verses 12 through 26. Um, we studied last uh, time the upper room prayer meeting, as it's called, in verses 12 to 14, uh, when, uh, and mostly uh, talked about who was there, the 11 apostles, the women, Mary the mother of Jesus, Jesus' brothers also were there. We talked about the fact that it was not yet a church, because the church had not been born yet, but it would be soon. And uh, we also talked about how, although they were told by the Lord to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, they didn't wait idly. They waited actively by prayer. And so they continued with one accord in prayer and in all manner of prayer, worship and confession and requests for others interceding for themselves and and others as well. And so uh, that was really where we ended effectively last time because we had uh, also mentioned a little bit about the role of uh, women in prayer meetings in this particular prayer meeting. And um, so they had grown in their numbers to 120 people uh, very shortly. And it says in verse 15, In those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. The number of names was about 120. We just pointed out that they knew. I mean, this the fact that this number is recorded means to me that they knew who was with them and who wasn't with them. There was a role in somebody's mind or on somebody's piece of paper that specified who was in, who was in part of this church and who wasn't. Um, and as people were added, they were, uh, were adding them. Uh, it wasn't just a kind of a loosey-goosey kind of thing. Uh, we can talk more about you know, church membership another time and, and how that works. Some, some churches make a big deal about that. Others make very little about that. Uh, we're closer to the uh, make a bigger deal about it kind of end um, without trying to be uh, you know, unbiblical, obviously. But uh, in, uh, So he's going to tell the assembled people something here important about Judas. And so in order to set the stage for that, I'm going to actually have us drop down to verses 18 and 19, okay? Verse 18 and it's a parenthetical statement here. It's talking about something that happened in the, in the recent past. It's, uh, in fact, uh, we're getting, uh, well, let's see, we're 40 days after. So this happened, you know, nigh into six weeks earlier than, than when these events of prayer meeting were happening. It says in verse 18, now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out in one of the grossest verses in the Bible. And it became known to all those who dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is, the field 
of blood, the field of blood. In Hebrew, the word for, da, for blood is dam, okay? And uh, so this is the field of blood. Actually, it's in Aramaic, but uh, close enough to Hebrew that we can understand it with some Hebrew background. Um, now, this is what happened to Judas. Now, if you recall back in your mind to the accounts in the Gospels, you say, wait a minute, that sounds different than what happened to him in the Gospels. So the accounts don't immediately harmonize in your mind, that is, fit together or mesh together, because one account says he hanged himself, and the other account in Acts here says he purchased a field, he fell headlong, and he burst open in the middle. So what's the, the deal about that? Well, Matthew 27, 3 to 9 is the other portion, and I'll just uh, kind of skim through that with you. 27, 3 to 9, Judas... His betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful, this is 27.3, and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, well, what is that to us? You see to it. You, know, they, you can tell they're very sympathetic people, these high priests. Then he threw the pieces of silver, threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced or valued and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So, uh, obviously, you, you know that my inclination is going to be to say this, but I'll say it anyway. There's very, uh, uh, how can I say, the chances that there's a contradiction in the Bible here are slim to none. And as my dad said, Slim is out of town, <laughs> okay? So there are none. Um, and everyone in Jerusalem knew what had happened. So it wasn't likely that Peter was going to be reporting in a large crowd some falsehood when everybody knew what had occurred. It was public knowledge that everyone would know that Peter, what Peter was talking about and they would know the harmonization of what the information was. And so what I believe happened here was well, first of all, Judas didn't buy a field directly. Okay? He didn't show up at the title company. He was dead. His money that was his that he returned was used to buy the field by another agent, that is the chief priest. Okay? So he, quote, bought a field. All right? Uh, you know, I don't, don't think this is exactly the same thing, but, you know, he bought the farm. Okay? I mean, we have expressions like that, and it basically is saying, look, his money bought this. Now, I'm going to kind of draw together the strings of it at the end of this section, so hang on, you'll see the, what, what this really amounts to. But I believe what happened was that Judas hanged himself, died, and then his body fell out of the noose, or the noose broke off of whatever it was hanging on, and he fell down a distance, maybe it was over a, a small cliff or off of a hill or mountain or something, and 
and, and maybe that was after a day or two of hanging there. His body was bloated, and when he hit the ground, he burst open. Uh, that's a common reconciliation or harmonization of the situation. It's not pleasant. It's gross. And uh, will, no more detail will be forthcoming from this sanctified imagination, okay? That's all we, that's all we need to know. Uh, he was dead as dead could be. Now, the 30 pieces of silver that he was paid are what is called here in Acts uh, the wages of iniquity. Why? Because they were paid for a sin that was committed. Okay? They paid him to do a sin, and he did it, and that was his wages. Now, he was a greedy man. Do you remember? Judas had the bag. He was the treasury, uh, the treasurer of the group of a 12 with Jesus, and he would freely take what was put therein for himself. He was an embezzler. Okay? That's said to us in, uh, I didn't look in the gospel which one, but I think it's in John's gospel or wherever you can easily find it. Um, and perhaps a couple of the others. Remember, he was the one that said, why wasn't this uh, uh, perfume sold to the sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. Like he cared for the poor. They found out later that he was stealing from the money box and uh, he didn't care anything about it. He just wanted access to the cash. He betrayed the Lord for a mere 30 pieces of silver. But listen, those weren't the only wages that he earned. Were they? The wages of sin is death. Not just 30 pieces of silver. Don't talk to me about your measly money as if it's some big deal. You work all your life and earn that money and then you'll earn something else if you don't trust in God through Christ. It's hard to imagine the silver pieces being much larger than our silver pieces are. You know, our, our silver rounds or coins are about that big around and as thick as a silver dollar, maybe, you know, kind of that thickness or a 50-cent piece. What, what are those, the ones with Kennedy on them? Is that what those are? Yeah. Uh, so a heavy coin, a bit, you know, meaty, but that's a pretty good-sized coin. In fact, we know silver pieces were more like, smaller in ancient times. But let's just suppose that that much silver was how much one piece was, and uh, there were 30 of them. So we're talking less than $1,000 in today's value that they gave him, 750 bucks to betray the Lord of glory who did nothing. They knew, Pilate knew was innocent. And this $750, say, however much it is, 600, 800, whatever, for a betrayal that ended with Judas not using the money. He didn't get anything for it in the end. He gave up the money because of guilt, and he was dead, and he ended up in his own place. Where's that? Look at chapter 1, verse 25. Uh, Peter is saying, look, we need to find somebody to, to replace him to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. Well, that doesn't sound too good, does it? 
No, his own place is, the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 17, of the ones you've given me, I've lost none except the son of perdition. The son of perdition, that is the son of destruction. That's where he's headed. That was what he was appointed to for the act that he did in betraying the Lord. And, and by the way, it wasn't just a one-off thing, remember. He was a rank, unbelieving rebel for years. I mean, anybody that could sit with the Lord Jesus and put their hands right into the money box and, and have that kind of attitude and all of that. So, ay ay ay. Anyway, um, the, his wages of iniquity didn't pay very well, did they? No, he ended up with none of that. And uh, as, as I was speaking to my brother today, you know, you can gain the whole world, but lose your soul. Well, here he only gained 30 pieces of silver, 750 measly bucks, and he didn't even get to keep that. His soul was required of him that night, and he was gone. Now, Judas, as we read in, in Matthew, re- regretted his actions, and he took the money back to the priest so they could not use it then for a clean purpose because it was blood money. So they had some kind of you know, law-based superstition that like since this money was used for this purpose that we couldn't use it for some sanctified purpose. Now, can you just tell me why? They know that the money is blood money and they're the ones that paid it and now they're sensitive about how they're going to use it now? Like since when did they get so sensitive about when they're going to, how they're going to use this money? I mean, you'd figure they'd just launder the money through the system somehow and, and get it cleaned up so they can kind of forget about it. And it just, this is sinful thinking. Sinful thinking. You know, it's kind of selectively outraged about certain activities like healing a man on the Sabbath or something. And uh, it doesn't care about buying somebody, paying somebody off for blood. Uh, that selective moral thinking is is a terrible place to be. So they used it for something not related to the temple or to the Jewish people. They bought a plot of ground to use for a cemetery for strangers or, or foreigners. We might call it a pauper's grave or a common grave. In the English speaking world, sometimes it's called literally a potter's field. Have you ever heard of that? A potter's field where a poor person that has nobody, their family doesn't, doesn't, claim their body from the morgue or whatever, they end up going to the potter's field. That's where this, or this is where that has come from. Uh, In the final analysis, Judas traded Jesus for a cemetery. Right? He traded Jesus ultimately for a cemetery. Pathetic. This is an analogy for what people do in this life with the Lord Jesus. They trade him for a life of pleasure or wealth or ease or lack of restraints or to save their academic reputation. You know, you couldn't be a Christian because people think you're backwater, redneck, idiot, you know. Or they want to save their standing in the eyes of their non-Christian friends. This trade is very short-sighted and will indeed have a guaranteed poor outcome. A cemetery in exchange for the fleeting pleasures of life. 
That's not a very wise deal, is it? Not very wise at all. And again, the wages of sin is death. So you'll get all your wages. You won't get any of the benefits that you wanted to get. The plot of ground, if you don't follow the Lord, of course. The plot of ground was called Akeldamah. We said this where this comes from, pot of the potter's field. Why was it called the potter's field in the first place? Well, we don't know for sure, but it may have been a place where people went out of the city and got good clay to make their pottery from. Maybe, don't know for sure. But this was the legacy of Judas, a legacy of betrayal, of greed, of unbelief, of lack of trust in God. That was his legacy. Is that the legacy that you want to leave? No, I don't want to leave that kind of legacy. I want to leave a legacy of trust in God, of long-range vision that is heavenly vision, of uh, uh, helping other people, of serving the church, of belief, of trust in God, all of that. That's the kind of legacy that we ought to want. Finally, Judas gives us uh, an instructive example of the difference between regret and repentance. He did not repent before God for his sin. He regretted it, however, and was remorseful on a human level about what he did in condemning an innocent man to die. He knew Jesus was innocent in the first place. Do you remember... Did, did, you, did you pick that up when we read that in Matthew 27? Let me read it again. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he said. He knew what he had done. He knew what he had done. His conscience was bothering him. He couldn't get away from it. Yet he had not been able or yet was able to humble himself before the Lord and admit that he was wicked in that way. So this is like a halfway, a halfway house. This, this kind of regret is a halfway house between the normal un, a person who doesn't regret the bad things they do and full repentance. And you know what that halfway house is like? Another bad theological idea, purgatory. God has put a conscience in us to bother us when we do wrong, when we're young, disobeying our parents, uh, and from there on, on all the way up. We have this conscience, and it bugs us when we do something wrong and until we make it right and we confess it to the Lord and, and or the person that we've harmed or hurt or whatever, uh, spoken wrongly to. Um, done some wrong to. Anyway, we have we're, we're, we can not we as believers, but we as humans. If we if we're not trusting in Christ and don't have that full blessing of repentance and confession and washing of sin, we exist in this kind of purgatory of the conscience never being right, always having these gnawing pains of things done that you have no repository for them for years. Can you imagine? of all your sins that have accumulated over the years, and you've come, well, you know, time heals all wounds and all that sort of stuff. Does it? Does it? Purgatory. The purgatory of an uncleansed conscience. And that's what he had. Very energetic conscience. He knew that he had done terrible wrong, 
and he couldn't handle it. And he ended up harming himself because of that. And uh, listen, let's not go there, okay? Get that conscience cleansed. Get that conscience washed in the blood of Christ and uh, feeling like it's been solved out of that terrible place in which it could find itself. Um, The difference between regret and repentance seems to be this. Regret is self-centered. Regret is human-centered. Repentance is God-centered, okay? Regret is focused on consequences, perhaps consequences to myself, or even consequences to other people. People can have a regret like, man, I hurt that person, and that bothers them, right? Repentance focuses on the consequences of our sin with respect to God. Repentance includes regret, but regret does not include repentance. You see that? Here is, here's repentance, okay? In your conscience, when you've repented before God, in your mind, you have regret inside of that repentance as well. But if you're an unbeliever and have no repentance, and this is your little universe of, of regret, you don't find repentance toward God inside of there, okay? It's, you know... I, I tried to think about and explain this in a different way than what we've traditionally heard. We've traditionally heard the explanation in terms of the Greek words, you know, metanoeo, to change the mind, and metamelami, to regret. And Dr. Sachs would often say those things, but it didn't help me. I mean, it helped me in the sense that I knew the Greek to some extent, but it didn't help me to kind of bring it into, well, what's the difference actually between the two words, and uh, the two ideas. And uh, you see, you know, Judas here, I have sinned by betraying the innocent blood. He regrets what he's done towards somebody else, but he never says, I've sinned before God and I've sinned before heaven. That's entirely different than the, the uh, tax collector. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector? The Pharisee said they're praying thus with himself. I'm glad that I'm not like other men. And the The tax collector over here won't even look his eyes up to heaven. He's not worthy to even look at God, I mean, in his direction. And he says, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee wasn't praying to anybody but himself. He was just having a little self-chat. The tax collector, on the other hand, was crying out in angst of soul to God and saying, I repent. Regret? No, there wasn't even regret over here. Repentance? Absolutely repentance over here. And so regret doesn't include repentance, but repentance does include uh, regret. And that's why sometimes we say repentance doesn't have to do just with feelings. You know, we're not trying to whip up emotions in somebody to get them to feel bad about their sin. We're trying to help them understand that in the first place, sin is is a thing which creates objective guilt before God. You don't have to feel a thing, but you're guilty. You're guilty as guilty can be. And you can process that guilt in an objective fashion. Look, I've sinned before God. Now, when you come to terms with that and really understand it, it will, as far as I know, 
it will cause uh, negative emotions. You will feel badly that you have sinned against God and against your fellow people. But if you don't care about your relationship to God, you don't care what your sin has done and to God and His holiness, then you're falling short of what repentance really is about. So these two verses just uh, are the uh, kind of launching point for us to think about the doctrine of repentance and of regret. But hopefully that's helpful to you as we've looked at that. And we'll have to uh, put the rest on hold until next time. So that's our, that's our lesson. I intended to get much farther than that tonight. But you know what? One, one main idea and uh, a grand illustration of that idea with Judas uh, receiving the wages of iniquity, trading Jesus for a cemetery. Don't you do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help us as we think about this text and what Judas did and what we desperately do not want to do to have that kind of life end in that kind of way with that kind of ignominy, shameful. Lord, help us to live for Christ. Help us not to trade our birthright for a mess of pottage, to trade Christ for a cemetery. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.